from PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and the studios of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club. I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. On today's show, voices of faith speak out against the war on drugs, calling for decriminalization, legalization, and harm reduction. We'll talk about all these concepts with Reverend Alexander Sharp, who's the founder and executive director of Clergy for a New Drug Policy. He works with ministers from across North America to promote a model of health, not punishment. Stay tuned. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with the Reverend Alexander E. Sharp. He's been working on criminal justice issues for 15 years, and he served as the founding executive director of Protestants for the Common Good in Chicago, Illinois, from 1996 through June of 2012. Reverend Sharp and his colleague Walter Boyd joined the early efforts in Illinois to provide a second chance for those seeking to rebuild their lives after prison, They were struck by how many individuals, predominantly African-American and Hispanic, were incarcerated for low-level drug offenses, and they began to challenge the war on drugs. Reverend Sharp has brought national models of diversion to public attention in Illinois and played a key role in the passage of medical marijuana in Illinois in 2012. He is the founder and executive director of Clergy for a New Drug Policy here in Chicago, Illinois, and we'll be talking about his work to... Uh, decriminalize drugs during this hour. You can find out more at the Clergy for a New Drug Policy website, newdrugpolicy.org, or at thingsnotseenradio.com. Reverend Alexander Sharp, welcome to Things Not Seen. Good afternoon. You are an ordained minister, and you have had a long career in public policy. What got you into work that is is focused on uh, decriminalizing drugs? <laughs> Uh, I, I would uh, start by saying that I'm concerned not only with uh, decriminalization but the full spectrum of change uh, in drug policy that takes us away from a culture of punishment towards a health model. So that would include legalization but it would include the fancy word of diversion which you use which simply means keeping people out of the criminal justice system who don't need to be there. Police always have the option if someone is nonviolent and hasn't harmed others and needs treatment uh, mostly because they're cycling in and out of the criminal justice system to refer them directly to what can help them most, whether it's housing or counseling or other forms of of services. So the broad answer is I'm concerned with a change in the paradigm of how we respond to drug use. What got me started was something you mentioned in the introduction that my uh, colleague and I, Walter Boyd, uh, in the late 1990s, uh, were down in Springfield uh, because we had become aware as we worked with Protestants for a Common Good that the notion of a second chance uh, for those who have been uh, imprisoned or even in some cases simply arrested is one of the great myths in American society. You can't really repay your debt to society. And we wanted to try to do something to change that. As we did, as we talked to legislators who were even more frightened of being appearing to be soft on crime then than perhaps they are now, we realized how many people were coming out of prison who'd been there for 
been in prison in the first place for nonviolent, low-level drug possession, often with very long sentences. Uh, horror stories are, are rampant. Uh, the more we looked at that, the more we looked not at re-entry, but no entry. Why are, why are these folks in prison in the first place? That brings you to the, the war on drugs, which has uh, a failed war over the last 45 years, uh, which has done great damage to individual lives and to society as a whole. So it was simply this, this notion that you know, our faith calls us to forgiveness, but there is no forgiveness in our society for folks that uh, have even the most minor uh, drug offenses on their record and in some cases have gone to prison. Now, in your answer a moment ago, you said that you were asking with Walter Boyd, why is it that these people are in prison? And there's a pat answer to that, a standard answer. They're in prison because they're bad people. They're in prison because they've done something wrong. So how would you respond to that uh, characterization? Well, the first thing you have to say is that uh, that brings forward a gross miscarriage of anything approaching justice in our society because when you look at who's in prison, uh, especially for drug use, it's uh, predominantly or disproportionately at least uh, African-Americans and Hispanics primarily from poor uh, neighborhoods. So good or bad, uh, we we are creating a a vastly unequal society, which is uh, because of our drug laws that was uh, already uh, unequal to begin with. As far as uh, whether people are good or bad in response to drug use, we're finding out a whole lot about addiction and what causes it. Uh, And it's not necessarily uh, something that happens because people are immoral or weak or bad people. It's because of troubled souls, of people who are self-medicating, of people who turn to drugs uh, often in response to stress and trauma. You know, I came across a phrase not too long ago, uh, which kind of haunts me. It was called poverty crimes. Uh, I think it was the public defender in Chicago, a wonderful uh, person named Amy Campanello, who talked about uh, people who, for example, might sleep uh, in churches and in order to feed their family or just to basically continue to exist, they might steal a church offering. Well, that's a poverty crime. Uh, Those aren't, in my definition, bad people. Those are people who are struggling to survive in our society. So this question of who is bad and who isn't is a very complex question. I think the gospel has a lot to say about it very often as uh, you know, as Pharisees, we look down on the publicans who himself uh, realized who's bad and who isn't. A moment ago, you used a term self-medicating, and I wonder if you could unpack for our listeners who maybe have not encountered that term before, what does that mean? So medicating, we know what that means. What does self-medicating mean? Self-medicating means that you're trying to make yourself feel better through uh, artificial means, in the case of drugs, a uh, substance from, you know, outside your own physiology. Uh, I think... Uh, we all do it in, in a number of different ways. I mean, let's first start with, with alcohol, which is, in fact, a legal drug. You don't go to prison for that. Uh, people who drink uh, recreationally and uh, are sometimes loving the taste of a good wine, but there's sometimes a sense that we need to kick back and feel a little bit better. Well, there are people that are that go far beyond recreational uses uh, who are in, in deep pain, and they seek a, a form of escape. Uh, and and substances, uh, the various drugs, uh, are a way to do that. Uh, and that often can be the path to addiction. But what's important is to understand 
not that it is happening, but why it's happening and how to respond to it. Uh, so self-medicating, I think, in layman's terms, just means make yourself feel better. And, you know, it's not just about substances. Gambling can be a form of escape. Pornography can be a form of escape. One thing we know now that we didn't know in the 1980s and 1990s is that it's not just substances that, that cause addiction. There are addictive behaviors as well, and we do those for any number of reasons, uh, which often can fall under this category of you know, easing the pain. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with the Reverend Alexander Sharp, and he's the founder and executive director of Clergy for a New Drug Policy. And we're talking about addiction and ways that there can be responses to addiction that maybe break with some of the traditional models of punishment that have, uh, in, in Reverend Sharp's opinion, not worked up to this point. A moment ago, you were you were talking about the, the the sort of models of addiction where gambling can be an addiction, eating can be an addiction, drugs can be an addiction, and I think that that begins to to get to the heart of some of the pushback that you would probably get, particularly from the evangelical community. You know, the the language of of addiction as a disease versus addiction as a moral failing really is the pivot point for an entry into this conversation. And so when people come to you and say, no, no, this is just a character flaw. These are people that need need in some way to, to get an inner strength and to bring themselves you know, upright again. Uh, how would you respond to that? What is your response, particularly as a pastor, to that kind of characterization? Well, I think uh, very often, in fact, in most cases, it's not a moral failing. I, I think, especially if you're talking about fundamentalists or the extreme uh, religious right on this issue, there's still a holdover, uh, sometimes subconscious, sometimes explicitly, uh, of the notion that our purpose in this world is to gain salvation in the next world. And the way you do that is not straying from the moral path. And the moral path is often defined as the flesh versus the spirit, so that one constantly has to be alert and upright and uh, not engaging in anything that has to do with pleasure or satisfactions of the, of the flesh. Uh, and drugs is included in that set of things that one doesn't do or otherwise one is a sinner. I certainly are plenty of people who believe that, plenty of people of, of good faith, uh, but I think increasingly that isn't necessarily the explicit view of what our faith is about and what the gospel calls us to. Uh, you can argue that heaven and hell are real in this world uh, and that uh, we achieve salvation or we understand God's love by giving to others. whole different paradigm than just salvation in the, in the next world. Uh, if that's the case, uh, then I think the, the notion that we drugs are inevitably uh, a, a sin— uh, simply doesn't hold hold water and isn't how we should how we should view them. And then the second point I think is the one I was making earlier that very often when people turn to drugs, uh, it's not necessarily through we through through weakness. One always hopes one has the choice, but there are a number of people who do become addicts who, in any practical sense, probably didn't have a choice. Uh, the single closest correlation between addiction, which is what we should be concerned about, not recreational use, uh, and uh, initial drug use is trauma, profound stress. If that's true, to call the victims of trauma who may turn to drugs uh, simply weak and immoral is, is both judgmental and it's simply not accurate. Well, then help us understand the current regime as it exists. So for low-level drug offenses, people can go to jail for vast amounts of time. 
How did that develop? If you could give us just in a couple short phrases kind of how that came to be. Probably most uh, predominantly the creation of the war on drugs, uh, and it's been fought for 45 years. I would argue that it has failed uh, abysmally on any number of fronts. But in fact, it started, and I, I don't try to turn what I'm saying and doing uh, into a, a political diatribe, but it is accurate to say in this case that the war on drugs started in 1971 because President Nixon and his advisors, they decided to conflate race and crime. They had a southern strategy uh, that they needed in order to gain reelection, and they realized that if they, uh, the war on drugs could be their vehicle to bring crime uh, and race together in the eyes of the American public, falsely in my mind, uh, and so they created the war on drugs. Nixon even had a commission. He, he commissioned a group of individuals to look at what the policy should be on marijuana. Uh, the commission came back, and it was a very high-level commissioner uh, commission, and it said at a minimum marijuana should not be uh, illegal. At, at uh, very worst, it, you might decriminalize it. Uh, and there were others who said, uh, you know, perhaps it should even be uh, legal. Uh, he, meaning the president at that time, ignored that commission. He deep-sixed it because that's not what he wanted to hear, and he went on and created what we now know as the war on drugs. And when we talk about the war on drugs, we're talking about an entire – militarization of the police force, aren't we? Well, that certainly uh, is part of it. Uh, drug use and drug policy was not on people's minds in 1980 when Reagan uh, really ramped up the war on drugs. Uh, what he did uh, in the first instance was simply increase uh, federal expenditures. This is a man who said government uh, is your enemy, but he, he seized on an expansion of government. Uh, the figures grew by tenfold on enforcing uh, drug laws, uh, which then got translated into very tough sentencing laws. And uh, so you had a combination of changes in sentencing laws, uh, major increases in expenditures at all levels of the federal government on drug uh, enforcement, vast amounts of money on uh, publicizing the evils of, of drug use. And, and then, as you point out, in the, in the mid-'80s came the militarization of the police, which now is perpetuated uh, because police are awarded uh, budget increases based on the number of drug arrests that they do. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with the Reverend Alexander Sharp. He's the founder and executive director of Clergy for a New Drug Policy. We'll be back in a moment. Hello, David Dalt here. You may be wondering why we take time out of the podcast to have these little minute-long breaks with the crazy music underneath. The answer is simple. We are trying to design the podcast so that it pays for itself, and so these are places where someday we will have some advertising. Now, let's say that you have been interested in getting into some sort of podcasting advertising platform where you want to promote your product. We would be a wonderful mid-market solution for you, uh, particularly if you want to reach an educated audience that really, really likes stuff about religion. Uh, so that's what this is here for. So if you would like to learn more about advertising with us, you can go to advertisecast.com or you can contact us through our website. We would love, love, love to work with you. Thank you always for listening. Okay, back to the show. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with the Reverend Alexander Sharp about his organization, Clergy for a New Drug Policy. 
we've been talking about the history of incarceration and the ways in which the 1970s, 80s, and 90s created a situation which, in the opinion of of Reverend Sharp and his organization, uh, there now needs to be uh, radical rethinking with regard to the way in which we treat those that are accused of drug use. So my mother was an alcoholic and had a, a dependency on substances. And as a result of that, you know, I'm still dealing with a lot of, of fallout in my life as a, as a person in my mid-40s who's now raising children of my own. I find that oftentimes when I hear calls for decriminalization and legalization, I get very stiff in my spine and I, I react uh, a, in a very emotional way because I see that the use of these substances unchecked has often done a lot of harm. And so I guess in some ways I am your prime audience because I'm one of the people that you need to convince why your approach is the right approach. I mean, what do you say when someone says, but I've seen the harm that these things do. Why would we want to let people do more of this to themselves? My sister was at different times in her life uh, an alcoholic. I think all of us can relate to what you're saying. I think my best response is to say that punishment is not the response. If individuals are troubled or are reaching out, to simply label them as criminals is not going to deter them. And that more fundamentally, the proper response is what I see in the gospel, which is compassion, uh, mercy, honest listening, respect, and if treatment is available, the possibility of treatment. But to criminalize people uh, is is not the answer. Now, I think the heart of your question, uh, what makes you uneasy, is the notion that if something is legal, it somehow increases the likelihood that there will be more people that do use whatever substance you're talking about. It's very hard to predict use. Uh, I would argue that education, public campaigns, the kind of availability of other responses than punishment is much more likely to affect what a person does or doesn't do. And so I don't think, again, that prohibition, as we saw with alcohol, was was the answer. Uh, I think there are people who are going to struggle with this, whether their punishment is the answer, whether the drugs are available or not available, and the question is how we respond to that. I, th- I think another thing that has to be said when one talks about availability is that when one talks about legalizing drugs or, or decriminalizing them, one is not talking about saying everything goes, just go out there and make stuff available on every street corner. We're talking about taxing and regulating, which means that you can control what kinds of substances are available. You can t- control where they are available. If everything is prohibited, everything becomes a black market. Uh, and in the case of my sister or your mother, uh, I, I would argue that she probably would have uh, obtained alcohol anyway. So the ultimate answer is prohibition does much more harm than good. What the good is in our response has to do with uh, how we respond in, in a lot of other ways, starting with an understanding uh, of, of why a person is inclined to become an, uh, an addict as your mother did or my sister did uh, in the first instance. I'm going to go one level deeper with this because I appreciate that answer and that answer appeals to my head. <laughs> and now I'm going to talk a little bit more from the heart. And since you have experience with some addiction in your own family, you, you will probably understand this at the same level that I do. 
when a person has an addiction in a family situation, oftentimes what occurs is that they're able to distort the entire reality of that family situation around the addiction. And so my experience when I first entered 12-step treatment and began to try and recover my life from that experience was a great deal of anger because I felt like I always had to be the good one and my mother got to get away with everything. <laughs> and and the, the, the notion that an addict somehow gets a pass a lot of times uh, in these situations because of that reality warp, I think that, that when you encounter people that want there to be a regime of punishment – I think that some of those people are going to be the law and order types that just get off on that. But there may be a significant portion that is also looking for the justice that they feel like they lost in their family situation. The person who was always able to get away, now you, pastor, are coming and saying they're going to get away with it again. I realize that that's not what you're saying. But how then do you speak not just to the the notion of of deconstructing the need for law and order, but also deconstructing sort of that deeper blessed rage for order that is at the heart of families that have been broken by these addictions? Well, that's a that's a complicated question, and I think those who are affected by a family constellation need the same kind of compassion and mercy and understanding and indeed God's grace that the addicts themselves need. I would say you were a victim of addiction as indeed your mother was and you need the same grace and mercy and compassion and the best that we can devise on how to respond that your your mother needed. The fact that you are suffering the, the impact uh, simply means that there are, are uh, uh, the same kind of care and mercy and compassion that one would you would have offered to your mother. Well, and you went to gospel language and you went to religious language, and I, I'm I'm intrigued by that. And so I accept your claim that I also am a person who is in need of grace and in need of healing. So how how does that? translate into public policy? I mean, we we have a separation of church and state. How can you then begin to bring this into the public policy arena, talking about grace and the gospel? Well, I'm not sure this is answering your question, but one thing that is badly overlooked in the whole discussion of drug policy is that, if just to take marijuana as an example, one doesn't have to be pro-marijuana use in order to be pro-legalization. Uh, The church can teach whatever it wants to teach. We can have all the educational programs that we want to have. We can have all the treatment programs we want to have. That's a different question than what the state says about drug use. It's the state condemning individuals by turning them into criminals through uh, uh, saying that something is is illegal uh, that does so much damage. That's a whole different question than what the church teaches uh, about the possible dangers of drug use and the need that to be totally abstinent from drug use uh, if one is is going to, to live one's life without becoming an addict. So uh, the separation of church and state is a, is a very pertinent question. It seems to me with the war on drugs, we badly blurred uh, the roles uh, of, of both. The, the penalties should be separate uh, as a matter of state functioning as opposed to what the church teaches. And indeed, what I'm learning more and more as we reach out to different faith perspectives, uh, and I would include Islam, uh, in this uh, is that 
one can't legislate morality in a strict and effective way. One can legislate perhaps keeping people from harming others. But in terms of personal morality and perspective, uh, simply passing laws is not going to significantly change moral behavior, especially when it comes to drugs. And to try to do so to confuses the two spheres in a way that, that can be very damaging. Throughout our conversation... Could, could I pick up on one thing? Yeah. I, just, I just mentioned the, yeah. the Islamic yes. faith. That might have seemed like a very uh, remote reference uh, to all this, but it's pertinent because, as you probably know, uh, Muslims abstain any drug use, any substance, coffee, tea, forget about marijuana, the harder drugs. They abstain, and yet I uh, have two pieces on our website, uh, statements of their faith perspective, which condemn the war on drugs. Uh, for the reason that I mentioned, that uh, you can't live by laws uh, that enforce morality. It's not going to happen that way. And in fact, the way you change behavior is as a community comes together on what moral response is, but not because uh, the law dictates that that's what they should do. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with the Reverend Alexander Sharp. He is the founder and executive director of Clergy for a New Drug Policy, and we're talking about his work to reduce the level of sentencing and to change the paradigm for uh, for punishment for those that are accused of drug use in this country. Well, throughout this conversation, you've been using two terms that I think sometimes I interchange in my mind, but I, I know that you keep very distinct, and that is legalization versus decriminalization. Could you line out for us the difference between those two terms? Yeah, the difference uh, is is the following. Uh, if something is illegal as a matter of – it's the difference between criminal law and civil law. Criminal law says that something is illegal and you will be processed through the criminal justice system uh, for the offense. Uh, decriminalization says that the offense is civil and is punishable in the same way, for example, that a traffic fine might be imposed – for the way that you drive. Uh, that is not a, a criminal offense. It's not on your record, uh, although I, I think it probably does follow you in ways that you might not uh, know. But in any event, it, it's a civil offense and, and you're not branded for life as a, as a criminal if something is decriminalized. And so right now, drugs are scheduled under the criminal. That's correct. Under And, and so you, your sense would be a first step would be to take that criminal characterization and move it instead to thinking about it in the same way that we think about traffic offenses. Yes, and in fact, that's happening. That has happened in 17 states out of the 50 states. Now, let's go back a little bit further. Let's realize that against the backdrop of marijuana being seen as illegal, and I'm not going to go back to medical marijuana, uh, over half of uh, the population in this country now lives uh, in uh, uh, states where medical marijuana is legal. Uh, so I think that now includes 24 states, over half the population in the United States. We could talk about that. 17 states, I believe it's that order of magnitude, have decriminalized marijuana. A law is currently pending in the Illinois House. It's passed the Senate, which would decriminalize marijuana in Illinois. That law passed, uh, and Governor Rauner, in, a, in I will say a very, I thought, mindless way, uh, certainly not a, a direct and stand-up way, mandatorily vetoed that bill. He increased the fine. I mentioned the notion of a traffic ticket. He increased the fine uh, that one would have to pay from uh, uh, 100 to $200, which for poor people is pretty darn tough. Uh, and he uh, reduced only slightly the amount of marijuana one can have in one's possession uh, without it uh, being a crime. 
didn't say anything about it. I think he did it on a Friday afternoon, but it meant we had to go and start all over again, uh, which which we're now doing. So 17 states have gone in that direction. Uh, I expect that uh, many more will, although, as you know, four states have already legalized the cannabis, and I think we're going to see a, a fairly large number fairly soon. And when, when these states have done this, do you have any data about what the effects have been in terms of the population and the, the ways in which drug use has gone up or down or, or some of the, the civil effects? You know, I don't have those figures in my head for the, the states in the United States, but I will say two things. One uh, has to do with medical marijuana, where the fear was that this was simply a step towards legalization. I, and, you know, if you had uh, uh, something on grandmother's shelf to, to ease her pain over her severe chronic pain, the kids would see that as a san- an, an approval. They might even get some of the stuff and use it. Uniformly, uh, teenage use of marijuana has not increased in states that have legalized medical marijuana. Now, this isn't the United States, but I think it's a pretty darn good example. The country of Portugal in 2001 decriminalized, not legal, but decriminalized not just marijuana, but all drugs. Now, they have something called dissuasion commissions. You and I have talked about this, uh, where a doctor, lawyer, or social worker view cases that come before them referred by the police uh, and determine whether the use is fundamentally recreational, which case they might get a the user might get a you know, small fine, and that takes care of ninety percent of the cases. The remaining ten uh, percent uh, can be referred to treatment, are referred to treatment, not mandatory treatment, but they have the possibility of treatment. Here's my point: uh, drug use has not increased really at all. And uh, crime has not increased. The sky has not fallen. And we're not talking just about marijuana. We're talking about all drugs. So the data is available on on states, although it's very easy to distort the data. But my experience in this whole area, especially with marijuana and even other drugs, is everybody predicts the sky will fall. And it doesn't happen. The dire predictions prove not to to be real. So I – well, I don't know state-by-state data. Uh, I don't think there's anything that says you shouldn't decriminalize. Well, and so we've talked about decriminalization as a term, and there's another term that is in your literature, and and we've actually talked about in another uh, episode of, of Things Not Seen with the Reverend Leah Claire Scholl, and that's the concept of harm reduction. Yes. And I wonder if you might tell our listeners uh, what that term means and how that technique is being utilized. Harm reduction addresses head-on the notion that the only response to drug use should be to insist on abstinence which is what Alcoholics Anonymous uh, certainly does. Uh, Harm reduction says that there is going to be drug use. There will be drug users. Uh, That's a reality. It's been a reality probably since the beginning of measure time, and it will continue. Uh, And that our best responsibility in the act, and to use gospel terms, mercy and, and compassion and basic human decency is to reduce the harm for people who use drugs. And let me give you a kind of initiating example. Uh, it was done by a man I admire greatly named uh, Reverend Dr. Edwin Sanders, who's the, he calls himself the chief servant of Metropolitan Church in Nashville, Tennessee. And this goes back to the mid or late 80s. He started going into the neighborhoods of Nashville where people were using, uh, were injecting. They were drug users, probably heroin mostly. Uh, and it was just at the beginning of HIV, HIV AIDS, so it meant that it was very, uh, even more dangerous because of the possibility of infection. And he would provide them with clean needles. And when people said to him, how can you do that? He said, I can't save souls if people are dead. But that was an initial concept of harm reduction that uh, one was 
reducing the harm of people that one couldn't save in any other way. And the underlying principle in that case and continues to be every life is worth saving. What one finds with harm reduction when one responds, as I believe Jesus did in the gospel, to people who lived on the margins, some of whom uh, we don't know anything about drug addiction in those days, but people who were truly on the margin and were the great other uh, in the gospel are are the ones that he cared about most. And he didn't punish them. He, he responded uh, in, in very different ways than uh, branding them as criminals. So that's basically what harm reduction is. It's to recognize the reality uh, that drugs exist, that some will turn to them, and that a key human response, and I think a divine response, is to reduce the harm where they are. Well, I'd like to sort of bring this from the policy now to the personal and to ask the question, as you have been engaged in this work for the last year with this organization being launched, how has it affected your own spiritual life, your prayer life? How has your faith been affected by your work in this area? I pray. I believe in the gospel of of the good news that God uh, loves creation. That hasn't changed. It's fueled my work and it drives my work because I don't believe in a God of punishment. I don't believe in a God that condemns people for moral uh, weakness as much as he reaches out to them with mercy and forgiveness and compassion. I've, I've used those words. Those are overused words, but it's deepened my understanding of the good news of the gospel. It's enriched my vision of who and what Jesus was and is today. Let me tell you what I saw in Vancouver with these harm reduction folks. These were people who were actually helping people to inject drugs under medical supervision, but with the stuff that they had brought into their facility. They were saving lives. They were responding to people where they were. They were living the gospel notion that we care about people on the margin. Uh, They weren't condoning use, but they also weren't judging use. And in their acceptance and in their sense of caring and in their compassion and in their walking side by side with these people, they were actually in many cases saving those people. They were saving their lives because people weren't dying of overdose. They weren't becoming infected uh, by uh, infected needles. And miraculously, what happened is that some folks who would have perpetually forever perhaps been on the street did indeed seek treatment. So what's happened to me spiritually is all of this has enriched my sense of who Jesus is and what the gospel means. What I saw with these with these staff was a commitment and joy and faith uh, in what they were doing that uh, I, I have not – I very rarely see. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're having a conversation today with the Reverend Alexander Sharp. He's the founder and the current director of Clergy for a New Drug Policy. We'll be back in a moment. Hello, Dave Dalt here. Earlier in the show, I talked about podcast monetization through advertising. But let's say that you, as a listener, don't have anything to sell right now, but you still want to support Things Not Seen. We can make that happen. Here's how it works. You could go to our thingsnotseenradio.com website or csec.org and make a one-time donation. It would be tax-deductible, and that would be wonderful. But you can also support us on an ongoing basis through a platform called Patreon. Now, here's how that works. 
You set the amount, $1, $5, $10, $1,000, whatever an episode of Things Not Seen is worth to you. And every time that we release a new episode, you would be charged on your credit card for that amount. You set it. You set how long you do it. It's completely up to you, but it really would help us. So please go to our website or go to patreon.com and set it up. And we thank you always for listening. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. We're speaking today with the Reverend Alexander Sharp. He's the founder and executive director of Clergy for a New Drug Policy, which is based in Chicago, Illinois. It works on models of harm reduction and decriminalization in an attempt to rewrite the narrative that has been dominating our regime of punishment with regard to those accused of drug use. So help me see how you are going to get churches to sign on to this. And I'm thinking, you know, the, you mentioned a church down in Nashville that was a pioneer in harm reduction just a moment ago. But I can also think of Moody Bible Church just up the street here on LaSalle, or I can think of, of churches in Wheaton or churches where where I grew up in South Georgia that would take a very hardline stance against the kinds of narratives that you're you're bringing here. What are your strategies for actually bringing this message into a church atmosphere and having it be heard? I think the I, I would go back to some of the ground that we have covered, and that has to do with the notion of whether drug use is a function of sin and weakness, uh, or whether it is much more complex. In which case, one says, "Okay, abstain," and then only will you be a good person. I at the risk of presuming to speak as though I know your mother, which of course I didn't, I doubt very much that saying uh, you're a sinner and you're weak uh, and you've got to abstain uh, would have been the most constructive uh, response to her, nor do I think it would reflect why she had turned to drugs, in the, or in this case alcohol, uh, in the first place. And I would take your very moving example of your mother moving in the sense of, because you're sharing something profoundly uh, important and significant in your life, uh, I would take that message writ large to Moody Bible Institute. I would take that example uh, to them, and I would say, "Is it, are you really wanting to say uh, that Jesus viewed those who would view those who are suffering from addiction or even might be on the path to uh, uh, abuse of drugs uh, as, as necessarily weak and sinful, or are there other deeper causes which he probably recognized more deeply than we ever could. So I would challenge their assumption that sin and weakness and being deterred from the path to salvation in the next world are the primary issues that we ought to be responding to. You know, I was asked a while back whether clergy were becoming more involved in the issue of drug policy and um, why they hadn't been more involved up until now. There are two reasons. In African-American communities, when drug use uh, came up as an issue, they saw the ravages of drug use in their communities, and their response was, very often, we need more police to take care of the traffickers. And I certainly don't quarrel with that, but simultaneously what they didn't see is what the drug laws themselves were doing to individuals in their community, whereas being stopped with a small amount of marijuana on your on your body would lead you to uh, certainly an arrest, which in turn means that you may not be able to get housing, which means if you're convicted, uh, uh, you may not be able to get food stamps. You may be separated from your family. 
so I think African-American community clergy there are more and more realizing that the drug laws, as they're written, hurt their communities even as drug abuse itself can. And we're all against trafficking. Uh, what legalization does is take a lot of the evil trafficking uh, and allow you to regulate the availability of drugs and undercut the black market. Now, go to the white communities. We've never had to deal seriously with the war on drugs in white suburban communities because we have the wherewithal usually to protect our kids, to find a lawyer if we need to or to to find treatment if we need to. So basically white suburban communities and the clergy thereof uh, have gotten a pass on the war on drugs. So if I were speaking to them, you didn't ask about them, but I'm talking about clergy more broadly, I would call them to social conscience in in terms of responding to the war on drugs. But my my answer to the Moody Bible Institute folks, and I went to Mount Hermon at Northfield School, which is founded by Dwight Lyman Moody, uh, would be that it's not as – don't be so fast to say that drug use is a function of, of uh, sin and weakness as you might otherwise think. Well, you launched this campaign, I guess, about 18 months ago, almost 24 months ago? Uh, I launched the organization Clergy for a New Drug Policy uh, yes. about uh, a year ago, March. Our, our website, uh, newdrugpolicy.org, went public at that time, yes. And what has the response been from clergy and from laypersons? It's been almost uniformly positive. Let's take marijuana because that's that's really the firewall on the war on drugs. So much time is spent on law enforcement enforcing marijuana laws, public debate focusing on marijuana laws, uh, and the far deeper problems of the harder drugs uh, uh, really not even being focused on in the same way, although that's changing now with the obviously the opioid, opioid uh, epidemic. I find that when it comes to medical marijuana, I have almost yet to find the first clergy person who says, no, I, I, I don't support medical marijuana. Uh, it's an act of compassion to support medical marijuana because people increasingly are understanding that uh, marijuana does help people with the kind of chronic pain that you and I cannot really understand unless we've experienced a pain that will never be alleviated. So clergy, as I recruited support for medical marijuana in Illinois, almost uniformly said, yeah, I'll be there. And and they were. Uh, when it came to decriminalization, I find very much the same thing. I didn't have trouble getting uh, 15 people to a press conference uh, in Chicago to launch the new effort to uh, pass decriminalization of marijuana in, in Illinois, basically because it's pretty well understood on the part of the clergy I at least reach out to uh, that one shouldn't be a criminal for possessing a low amount of marijuana. I'm not talking about trafficking now. We're talking about low-level possession. Legalization uh, is trickier because – mostly because um, it implies a sanction, an approval of the use, uh, and and therefore it's very important to recall what I said earlier, that being pro-legalization doesn't mean you're pro-marijuana. Making something illegal has all sorts of negative consequences that do more harm than good. What are those in the case of marijuana? First of all, we're concerned about our youth, right? Well, if we're concerned about our youth, we don't want them going to uh, alleyways to buy their marijuana, which is very much available to them, uh, from people who can sell them bad stuff that could really hurt them or, and which uh, will put them in contact with people that are probably very happy to sell them other drugs as well. They don't ask for an ID when they, when, uh, they sell uh, marijuana uh, to our youth. So the whole question of the black market uh, is, a, is a serious issue. The whole question of safety uh, is an issue. And again, legalizing something doesn't mean that you go out and preach that everybody ought to use it. What you say is that taxing and regulating and using the revenue for educational programs uh, is a much sounder way, in fact, to protect our youth. 
If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with the Reverend Alexander Sharp. He's the founder and executive director of the Chicago-based organization Clergy for a New Drug Policy. So you've had some good response to the website. Has there been pushback from religious leaders or from law enforcement professionals? Uh, law enforcement pushback is is always there because that's how they've been trained. You know, I just came back, and and that doesn't have to continue to be the case. Attitudes even among law enforcement can change. At the risk of taking you what might sound a little bit far afield, I've just come back from Vancouver, Canada, where harm reduction is a major activity there. I talked to the police chief in the particular area of Vancouver where harm reduction is is a practice and where they don't arrest drug users. They try to minimize the harm of their use. And it was extraordinary. He said, we understand very often these folks are victims uh, in, in, in a real uh, literal sense, uh, certainly as victims of trauma and stress and abuse, uh, which is really, I think, what leads to uh, the deepest forms of addiction. And he said, furthermore, uh, it's not so surprising that we would respond in this way because we're trained uh, in this response in our police uh, academy experiences. I couldn't believe it because I'm so used to law enforcement in this country reflexively saying uh, anything other than arrests for the lowest level of, of drug use is is the way we ought to be responding. So p- even law enforcement attitudes can change. And you know what? It's very important to realize that as the opioid epidemic, the heroin epidemic is be, that is currently uh, ravaging our society, especially in New England and some of the many other states, uh, it it becomes evident law enforcement uh, themselves is is changing their response. Uh, uh, The police commissioner of uh, police chief of Gloucester, Massachusetts, last March, when several people had died in a very short period of time due to heroin overdose in his community, put out on Facebook the promise that if people came in uh, to his, his department uh, turned over their paraphernalia, he would not arrest them. He would steer them to treatment. You know, that never happened with the African-American community uh, in all the years that you had, uh, you know, the ravages of drug use in the African-American communities. Uh, but it began to happen when white folks were, were being affected. Uh, and in fact, even in our own uh, Chicago metropolitan area, uh, or at least close to it, up in Mundelein, uh, Illinois, uh, the police chief there is, is doing very much the same thing. And there are other communities here that are doing it. So law enforcement attitudes can change, uh, but that's the probably – and there's also a, another organization that I worked very closely with of law enforcement called Law Enforcement uh, Against Prohibition. These are police officers who individually have, have walked the road that Paul did on the road to Damascus. Uh, the head of it, Neil Franklin, who's a close friend, talks about his years as a, a police officer in Baltimore and doing raids and in some cases literally uh, – destroying people's property. And he woke up one day and he said, I'm doing more harm than good. He is now head of a group called Law Enforcement Against Prohibition. I don't know the numbers, but it's very, very large, uh, and they're leading the way. So, yes, there is pushback from law enforcement, but there is a a growing number of of law enforcement officers who are saying prohibition is not the answer. And so – Looking now, you're you're very well informed on the policy. You're very well informed on the data. You you have traveled to a number of cities. You've probably traveled internationally and done some comparative work. What what is frustrating you at this moment uh, around these issues the most? That's a very good question. I haven't 
thought about it in those terms. I, I partly I I feel frustration, but what I also realize in any work of uh, change reform is that you're in it for the long haul. So I start with the assumption that there aren't fast and easy answers. So my frustration probably doesn't is diffused at least by the fact that I've been doing this for a long time, uh, and I do see change. When Walter Boyd and I started, uh, and this is very important, when I, I, I basically get more joy than I do frustration out of this work because I do see progress. When we started in the late 1990s, we'll go down to Springfield and talk to legislators. They couldn't throw us out of their office, uh, us out of their offices fast enough because they didn't want to appear soft on crime. We couldn't even talk to them about any of these issues. Now the governor has a, a 10-year com- a commission to reduce incarceration over the next 10 years by 25%. Uh, it's always a matter of public discussion about what we do in, in response to, to uh, all these issues. But in terms of frustration, what frustrates me, I think the same thing. There is really only, I think, one thing, or at least the thing that made Jesus, and I do not compare myself, let me say, the angriest, the fastest, and that was hypocrisy. Uh, he didn't like the Pharisees and the scribe who adhered to the letter of the law as opposed to the spirit of the law and the reason for the law in the first place. He brought a new message. He said, uh, um, I come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. It's the degree to which hypocrisy blinds people who are doing the damage they're doing in the enforcement of the war on drugs. I remember sitting across from a person for whom I have great respect, who was a former uh, head of the Drug Enforcement Administration uh, under either Ford or uh, Bush, uh, first Herbert Walker Bush, perhaps Reagan. And we were talking about... uh, illegal substances, and especially marijuana, as he had his second martini. And I thought, you know, there's something wrong with this picture. Uh, Not that I'm against, you know, using alcohol, but I am saying let's look clearly at what it is that we're doing, and let's, at the very least, let's not be hypocritical about what we're doing. So I think it's the notion of of judging others uh, and and not looking clearly at... uh, at one's own shortcomings, you have to approach all of this with, with humility, and to the extent that people are arrogant or not open, uh, uh, that's probably the source of greatest frustration. Throughout this conversation, uh, you've said it in a couple of explicit ways, but also I've heard it as a as a, a, a sort of drumbeat through everything that you've said. It's this strong sense that we're not talking about rehabilitation. We're talking about redemption, that we're talking about something that really brings a person in their whole selves back into community and belongingness. Have I heard that correctly? That's absolutely right. I think the most profound and I believe the most uh, accurate definition of addiction that I've heard is separation, loneliness, isolation. That's where you turn for help other than – whatever else might be, you turn to something artificial uh, to to um, ease whatever it is you're struggling with. Those are the people that we, that God did not abandon. Uh, uh, and it seems to me that uh, one is trying to restore one to wholeness, and that means dealing with the isolation, dealing with the loneliness, dealing with the separation. That's the profoundest cause of addiction. 
And that's you don't rehabilitate someone out of that. You deal with the basic, deepest needs of their life. Jesus said, "I came you might have that you might have life and have it more abundantly." And I guess it, it puzzles me. You know, if, if if Christians, let's just start with Christians here, which I am, uh, really believe the gospel, they would be ten times as joyous uh, as they and we are. If you really believe that God loved every hair on our head cared about everything that happens to us, we would be so filled with joy uh, that we wouldn't be able to contain ourselves. Uh, and when I think of people who are isolated and alone, I think of the extent to which they do not believe that and sense that, often because their lives have been steered in, in directions where it's almost impossible for them to be open to that. But if the gospel is true, uh, what it is, what it is, what our responsibility is, is to bring that gospel, that good news of God's love to people so that they do feel whole and they do sense that love. And I'm telling you, if we do, uh, add- addiction will be the last of their problems. Well, Reverend Alexander Sharp, I always enjoy talking to you, and I'm very thankful that you've, you've taken the time to tell us about your work today at Clergy for a New Drug Policy here in Chicago. My pleasure. We've been speaking today with the Reverend Alexander E. Sharp. He's been working on criminal justice issues for 15 years, and he's the current founding executive director of Clergy for a New Drug Policy. He was the founding executive director of Protestants for the Common Good, and he served that organization from 1996 through June 2012 here in Chicago. Reverend Sharp is a graduate of Princeton's Woodrow Wilson School of Public Affairs. He was ordained by the United Church of Christ in 2007 after having received his Master of Divinity from the Divinity School at the University of Chicago in 1996. He and his wife, Margaret Odell, live in Chicago and are members of Hyde Park Union Church. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC, with the support of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the studios of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club here in the Chicago Loop. Our theme music is composed by Gene Kija. David Dalt engineered the show. Kim Tron and David Dalt did the editing. Our staff includes Travis Abels, David J. Dunn, Natasha Alford, and Alexander Badenoch. Katie Scroggin is our senior producer. You can follow us on Twitter at Not Seen Radio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and to find out more about upcoming guests. That's facebook.com slash things not seen radio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and learn more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.